Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, we now quote Bitcoin spot prices here at Bloomberg because it has gotten that hot. And here to talk about sort of the agony that this presents to the biggest Wall Street banks is Shanali Basak. She's insurance companies and boutique investment banks reporter for Bloomberg News. She's also getting her MBA at NYU. And uh, before we get into the details of what to expect uh, right before Bitcoin starts trading on the futures exchange this Sunday for the first time, you said that there are crypto clubs and everyone's a crypto trader in your MBA classes. And It's shocking how many people talk about it in an MBA program. It comes up almost every day. What are they talking about? They're talking about how they can trade it. All their friends are in the market in some fashion, whether they're in technology somehow or whether they're at a bank and thinking of leaving, actually, to kind of, you know, get into the market in different ways. To do what? Well, for example, like one of the biggest investors we know in this space is Mike Novogratz, right? I mean, Mike Novogratz has people he's hired from Millennium, Goldman, and Morgan Stanley, right? So, you know, while the big banks have been very slow to get in, we've seen talent move to places where they can be more active in the market. Curious, how do they expect this to be cleared? If a lot of the banks are not willing to do that, how do you clear a trade? I am very curious to see what volumes look like on Sunday and Monday. I've been asking everybody what they're expecting because Goldman has said they'll be able to do it immediately. All the other banks pretty much have said they're not going to be ready on day one or they're not going to do it at all. They're still waiting. What's the main obstacle? Is it the uh, margins that people have to post? The margins are wicked high. How high are they? <laughs> they're 44%. They used to be 33%, but after so much volatility the last couple of weeks, SIBO actually raised the requirements. So that means that anybody looking to make a Bitcoin trade has to post 44% of whatever the trade they're trying to put on, the equivalent of that in some kind of hard asset cash. Correct. Aside. And, and so what does that mean if the price goes, you know, up rapidly? Then the banks have to be worried about it, right? The price yesterday alone surged 20%. So if this is something that is going to be uh, tradable, what is going to be the deliverable? Cash. It's actually cash settled. Oh, so it's all cash settled. So it, really, everybody, all they just want to do is they're just trading this to make dollars. They're using this to make money. Well, that's the other question that's coming up here, too, right? I mean, because it's cash settled, this shows that the futures market is pretty much a speculator's market, right? And so there's kind of inherent differences between how people trade Bitcoin now and how they will be trading them moving forward. There was a story on the Bloomberg that cited a statistic that I thought was rather shocking, that 1,000 investors, which is a relatively small pool in the scheme of the millions of investors out there, only 1,000 investors account for 40% of the Bitcoin holdings. What potential risk does that concentration offer up? Well, it's definitely a huge concentration risk. And I think it's also another reason people are kind of excited for the futures market. They're hoping that a lot of big institutional investors will start to get into the market because now we know the investors are not necessarily institutions. Pensions are not investing in Bitcoin. They're really worried about custody issues. Endowments are not really, although people are in talks with endowments, certainly they're not investing in this yet. So it's kind of limited, but it's also a lot of retail investors also. 
So really, it's, you know, uh, somebody once told me the average age of a Bitcoin investor is 22. I don't know how true that is. <laughs> but it's, it's it, what I'm trying to say, it's a younger generation. So Pim's daughter. Okay, well, yeah, right. Well, uh, let's hope not. Uh, <laughs> the thing that occurs to me, though, is if you have to put up so much margin and if the trade moves against you during whatever time frame, you know, before it expires, uh, how are you going to manage the big price swing so you're going to then get a call from your broker whoever is executing the trade saying you better put more money in the account by you know four o'clock or we're going to close out your account because it can go up and it can go down as much as we've seen what is it fifteen thousand one day ten thousand another day you're going to have to be constantly monitoring your margin requirement that's Absolutely true. And the people are already thinking about that right now. And, um, you know, I wonder, too, it means you also have less leverage on the investment, right? So I'm wondering if it makes it somehow less attractive. So let's talk about the uh, deliberations that are going on inside the biggest Wall Street banks right now. Uh, Goldman Sachs, as Pim was saying, has uh, decided to start clearing Bitcoin futures from day one. What's the debate internally here? The debate internally comes from a couple of ways. We talked about the volatility for a while. That's definitely a huge concern. Reputational risk. I mean, we've seen every bank CEO come out in some fashion saying something. The most prominent example of this is Jamie Dimon, who's called it a bubble and a fraud. Um, however, JP Morgan, that doesn't mean their clients are not asking about it. And they have to, and they, they are one of the people that have been weighing offering the futures contracts to their clients. So there's this inherent disconnect between what they have to address to clients and how maybe the banks feel about it. There's also know your cust customer and and money laundering concerns with with these contracts as well. Is is it useful to to think of Bitcoin as a commodity or as a currency? That's the big debate, right? What 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 is it? <laughs> um, you know, there there are arguments for it to be both. Um, I think that generally walking into the futures market, people are behaving as if it's a currency. I got to say, one thing that I'm struck by is that the actual price that you can get on Bitcoin is completely different from Coinbase to other uh, other exchanges. So you have to wonder uh, what the real value is and how are people not going to just simply get scammed? Right. We're definitely wondering kind of what the differentiation is among different exchanges and, and also not only just Bitcoin, but now you have a lot of other options to invest in the cryptocurrency space and how those prices are connected to each other. One of the biggest mysteries in this world, for example, is Tether. We had a fantastic story. And if you haven't read it yet, I really suggest you guys look at it by Matt Lysing. You know, what is underpinning the value of Tether? Well, we'll go and we'll explore that at another time. I want to thank you very much for being with us. Just to gold mention, though, shoes. Yeah, no, gold okay. shoes. Uh, the uh, uh, Commodity Futures Trading Commission says that Bitcoin is a commodity. Anyway, thanks very much, uh, Sonali Basak. Much appreciated. And uh, we'll be looking forward to more reports on what happens to Bitcoin. I have a feeling Sunday is going to be an important day.
Blame Japanese banks for the flat treasury curve. That's according to Citigroup strategists. Here with us is the CEO of the U.S. arm of a Japanese bank to comment on those Japanese flows and what they're doing to U.S. markets. Jerry Rosieri, president and chief executive officer of Mizuho Securities, joins us here in our 1130 studios. Uh, Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. So is this the case? Is it Japanese banks that are flooding into longer term U.S. Uh, treasuries that's keeping the yield curve flat? Well, that has been the case over many years. Uh, you know, foreign foreign holdings by uh, Japanese have increased uh, substantially over the last five to seven years, uh, up 25, 30, 40 percent uh, over that time period. Um, I think the bigger uh, movement into uh, U.S. Treasuries and and similar risk uh, risk free assets uh, was in 2016. Uh, 2017, it's been less of a fixed income story. Uh, and in fact, uh, we've seen evidence that uh, the banks and uh, particularly the regional banks in Japan uh, will be pulling back a little bit. Uh, much of that uh, dictated by uh, the uh, regulator, uh, Wait, the FSJSA. To be really clear, they've pulled back a little bit on their investments in U.S. Treasuries? Uh, I would say not, not pulling back in terms of uh, uh, selling assets, but uh, the pace of buying, I would say, has, has lessened. So this is not exactly the dynamic that. Well, I think I think credits. you know whenever you see moves, particularly in the U.S. Treasury market, yield curve flattening, yield curve steeping, uh, it, it's it's always common to to blame uh, Asia. non-U.S. investors. Asia, uh, it's always Asia, and of, oftentimes <laughs> Asia. Uh, you know, and uh, and uh, certainly the Japanese are large holders, uh, as China, of U.S. Treasuries. I just want to ask a little bit of maybe get an update. I know in 2015, Mizuho paid, what, about $3 billion for the loan book of uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, right? About That was a $36.5 billion loan book for North America. That's correct. Can you give us an update on that and whether if you were to be able to buy that today, what would that be worth? Well, they were uh, basically uh, loan commitments. So uh, the reason we pursued that uh, transaction was uh, to uh, elevate our uh, client uh, penetration here in the Americas. So uh, the book itself was interesting, but more importantly, we were looking uh, to establish long-term lending relationships in the U.S. Uh, and that's what we've actually done. We've uh, We've more than, uh, geez, I think top-tier lending relationships have, have increased 10 times uh, over the last uh, two and a half years. And you're hiring human beings, right? Yeah. So with the, the, the asset purchase in and of itself was interesting, but we actually wouldn't have pursued that unless we were able to bring uh, a number of people over from the institution. So we took on about 120 people from RBS uh, along with those assets. Uh, just uh, with respect to Mizuho Securities, how much has it expanded and how much do you plan to continue expanding from a headcount perspective? Sure. So so in the U.S., uh, I joined the company in 2010. Um, and we at Securities, we were maybe a little over 300 people. Uh, now we're heading, heading towards 800. Um, it's been a, uh, I say, a measured expansion. Uh, we've uh, tried to uh, move at a pace that sort of suits our organization's uh, tolerance. Uh, and But having said that, uh, it's been very targeted. So it's been capital markets, uh, so debt capital markets. It's been equity capital markets. We've expanded our high-yield business over the last couple of years. Uh, also on the sales and trading front as well, uh, growing out our equity platform as well as diversifying our fixed income platform. 
Any uh, thoughts or maybe comparisons between now and the and the time of Lehman Brothers? Uh, whether the banks and uh, brokerage firms have they changed at least the way that they perceive their balance sheets? I mean, does that inform the day to day operations of of the organization? I mean, things are you know I, I am former Lehman Brothers. I was there for twenty three years, so I know that situation well. But uh, I mean, yeah, the environment's a lot different. I mean, there's less leverage. Uh, you, you know, the uh, regulatory environment's uh, different. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I would say that, uh, you know, these, the industries have been expanding, uh, yeah. since 2008. Uh, so empl- employment's up and, and business actually is, is, is pretty decent. Where is the biggest opportunity for Mizuho securities in U.S. markets? Is it high yield bond trading? Is it underwriting investment grade bonds? So we're, we're already top 10 in corporate investment grade debt in the U.S., which is something- With respect to trading. In, in terms of origination. Uh, in terms of uh, trading activities, we've been uh, aggressively expanding our equity platform uh, and cash businesses. Uh, we're, uh, we're working on uh, both derivatives and FX for fixed income uh, and equities. Um, in the uh, fixed income side, We've been uh, expanding our securitized products area as well as in our high-yield trading area. And just real quick, are you using balance sheet? Yes, we do. And is that uh, increasing? Our balance sheet uh, has been relatively stable, Um, uh, but it's not a constraint on our business, I would say. Thanks very much for coming in and spending time with us. Much appreciated. Very interesting. Uh, Jerry uh, Rizzieri is the president and the chief executive of Mizuho Securities. Total addressable market. What is it and why does it matter? Well, we have Bill Smead to help us answer this question. He is the chief executive officer and chief investment officer for Smead Capital Management. They're based in Seattle, helping to manage more than $2.2 billion. And you can follow Bill on Twitter at SmeadCap, S-M-E-A-D, Cap. All right, SmeadCap, what is total addressable market, T-A-M? Well, it, it, it means how many possible customers or how many possible uh, widgets that you can sell uh, based on the population available and those that have access to what you're doing. Okay. And uh, it, it's become quite a popular thing. We're, you know, we're, we're 10 years into maybe the best stretch that growth has ever had against value. So when, when, when valuations aren't very enjoyable to talk about, it's pretty easy for growth people to kind of slip into talking about possibilities and potential and uh, total addressable market as a way to, to think about potential. Well, I could guess I could say potentially at one point I was going to play for the NBA, but I knew that wasn't going to happen, so potential goes out the window. Does this make any sense? Well, you know, it it it, it does in cer- certain circumstances. I think you know, Warren Buffett says what the wise man does at the beginning, the fool does at the end. So, so let me give you an example. When he bought Coca-Cola in 1988, he actually paid a much higher price earnings ratio than he normally used to pay. He paid 18 times earnings, but he could see that Coke was in the early stages of beginning to sell soda pop all over the world 
rather than just the you know the most sophisticated parts of the world. And so you know by the time he got done, uh, we were on a one week mission trip with our family, and they were drinking Phantom on a relatively deserted island off the coast of Honduras, and that was about ten years ago, right? So they went from from mainly mainly dominating the highly populated parts of the Western world, and they went all the way around the world. So that market got addressed by Coca-Cola. So it's a good time to think about it at the beginning, uh, but but it's it's not good at all when you get in the late stages of a lot of financial euphoria like we are now to think about that because it usually breeds trouble. Bill, uh, what could be, in your mind, the next Coca-Cola, if not on that scale, but has the potential to really take off? I think you did uh, home in on some pharmaceutical companies, correct? Well, yeah. The, 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 there's an enormous population both in the United States and Europe of, of baby boomers, and osteoporosis is a, is a, is a, uh, a malady that, that has a tendency to hit as you get older, and it's especially prevalent in women. And uh, so, you know, Amgen makes the most successful uh, drug for treating osteoporosis, Prolia. And, and then as a, 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 a bit of good fortune, they found out in testing 30,000 people that it also caused tumors that were close to the bone to stop growing, and, and they sell that as Exgeva. And, and so, you know, even though that's a blockbuster already, Prolia is, it's just got a lot of population in its way, and, and, and that's something that the company has to look forward to. It, it, another case, in Amgen's case, they, they're introducing Rapatha, and, and the health insurance industry has been slow to take it on, given all the tweets and grief associated with uh, pharmaceutical prices. So uh, it, it's been a slow to be adopted, but if you combine that with statins, people with terrible high, high bad cholesterol drop down to about 70 bad cholesterol. In effect, we could have a nation of marathon runners uh, running around, people that were formerly had the blood of, of someone with severe heart disease potential and, and, and very likely at some point in time to get hit by heart attack or stroke to a bunch of marathon runners around running around because of the way that this attacks bad cholesterol in the bloodstream. Well, Bill, eventually those marathon runners might have to head home. Uh, can you talk about the home-building market and specifically Lenore? Well, yeah, uh, Lennar now owns more buildable lots than anybody because they're, they're merging with Cal Atlantic. And uh, as you go forward, the, the three things that are going to be tough to deal with to build all the homes we're going to need. And, and the total addressable market is that some large percentage, I think Zillow is on the cutting edge of, of measuring this, some very large percentage of the millennials that are ages 22 to to 41 are going to end up buying a home, and many of those homes need to be built because the people at the other end aren't moving out of their homes as fast as people are moving in. So, so uh, having a lot of buildable lots is one of the uh, ingredients that would help you meet that addressable market. And then, of course, the labor is going to be a big challenge, right? We, we, we think that you might see a very generous green card set up for people in carpentry, plumbing, electricians, etc., uh, bricklayers, uh, roofers, you, you name it, and, 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 uh, and then the materials. And we could see some inflation in the materials as well. But uh, that's right. Th those are in front of us because even today, the, the home building that's being done today is way better than five years ago, but it would, it would have been a bad number in 1965, 75, 85, or 95, right? In other words, it's, it, we're at, still at recession 
low levels of home building compared to past decades. Okay, but Bill, when does the stock get too expensive? I mean, you're looking at Lenar right now. The stock is up more than 44% so far this year, and it uh, sports a PE of over 16 for a home builder. Right. So so uh, what, what you've got here is a historically cyclical business in a secular surge, and we think we're, uh, we've finished the third inning is where we think we are. Now, what that means, uh, Pim, and for low turnover portfolio managers like that, us, this is one of the challenges of, of being our investors, is we want to sit through whatever correction comes next to get to where this is going to be in five or six years. So you're right. This industry, the earnings are growing 20% a year uh, on about 10% revenue growth, right? So there's people out here in Seattle excited about a company whose revenue is growing 30% and whose profits don't grow at all. And this is an industry whose revenue is growing 10% and the profits are growing 20 So you're absolutely right. They've had a good run. They could have a correction at any time. In fact, this market could have a correction at any time. But for the long-duration investor that wants to catch this next 5 to 10 years uh, aging of the millennial group, it's a nice addressable market to consider. Bill, another way to hedge against the downturn is holding more cash. Are you doing that? No, we, we, we kind of made a decision 10 years. Our fund, our, our, our fund will be 10 years old. Our strategy will be uh, 10 years old right after the first of the year. And, and we just made a, a choice at the beginning. We assumed that most of the people that would invest with us, it, we would be a part of their total portfolio. Someone else is likely doing the asset allocation. And so we don't really feel like we have any special competency to time the market. In fact, it, you know, we got started at the beginning of 08. The next got 14 it. months was the worst market decline in 80 years. So <laughs> I, I don't think people should be coming to us for market timing. Bill Smead, thank you so much for joining us. Bill Smead, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer at Smead Capital Management, overseeing $2.2 billion in Seattle. What would you like to do for a job? Perhaps a game tester. You don't need any experience for that. Or a heavy equipment operator. We hope you have experience for that. Here to help us understand the job market right now is the chief executive of ZipRecruiter, Ian Siegel. is also the founder. Great to have you with us, Ian. Thanks for spending time. Uh, you know, I was looking at your site, looking at, at trending job titles, uh, trending job types. And I'm seeing that one of them is a, a boat captain. Where does this information come from? Well, we at ZipRecruiter are probably the single largest starting point for small and mid-sized businesses that do job posting in America. And so we end up uh, getting all the interesting jobs on our site. So if you, for example, uh, run a small ship business or let's say you are in a hurricane struck area and hurricanes have knocked out your business for the last few months, then it seems likely that you're going to go on a hiring binge right now to restock the captains for your ships. 
So Ian, is it fair to say that ZipRecruiter is sort of a byproduct or caters to the gig economy? Well, certainly the, the gig economy makes up a lot of the jobs that you will find on our site, and that's because the gig economy increasingly represents a large percentage of opportunities for people to work in America. So whether it's Uber or Lyft or Delivery Hero or a multitude of on-demand services, uh, the gig economy has become a material option for a lot of job seekers, not just for full-time work, but also as a uh, second job to bolster their income. So, Ian, uh, one thing that a lot of economists sort of decry is that there isn't a tremendous amount of visibility into the gig economy. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, you probably have one of the best views into it, frankly. And I'm wondering, what kinds of wage increases are you in, are you seeing? And, and has that been a positive trend that you've been noticing? Well, I mean, if you, if you look at the, the, the health of the global job market, or, and, and when I say global, I mean in the United States, uh, you know, you're at 4.1% unemployment, which is a 17-year low. You've had 92 months of the economy adding jobs in a row. And so you're really looking at what some would call peak employment. And when you're in that kind of environment, what happens is there is a dearth of talent searching for work. And so employers are forced to do things like raise wages to induce people to leave jobs they currently have and come to the, those employers' opportunities. So the gig economy um, isn't really benefiting from that wage increase. The gig economy is more like a foundation upon which if you want to work today, there is an opportunity out there for you to go get. But if you are looking for um, more full-time work in a, a more traditional role, Right now is a great time, probably one of the greatest times in our lifetime to be a job seeker. So are you saying that there is sort of a divergence here with sort of the, the standard jobs being uh, much more sort of competitive and higher paying and paying even higher wages, whereas in the gig economy, you're not seeing those pay raises? Exactly. And and part of why you're seeing people uh, be more patient in their job search is because 70% of the employees who are working in the gig economy are using it as a secondary source of income or as a bridging income between opportunities as they look for work that they would consider more meaningful. Well, Ian, when I asked you about being a boat captain, I thought you were going to say that you've got an algorithm or a way to uh, aggregate all of the information that comes to your uh, site and to your uh, specific uh, company. I I'm wondering then, it, it, how do you automate the process of matching uh, the right person with the right job, or is that left up to the company that's looking for the worker? Oh, no. No, no, no. We are not just at the bleeding edge. We are, I'm sorry, we're not the cutting edge of technology. We're at the bleeding edge right now. There is technology that has evolved over the last two years, often referred to as machine learning or sometimes called deep learning. It's an approach to building algorithms that do things that humans will never be able to match. We Can are you give us an example? Behind. Absolutely. So uh, when you use one of these algorithms, instead of doing a traditional match the way you would rationally do it, which is I, for example, have been a product manager in my career, old school algorithms would say, I'm going to find all the jobs that have product manager in the job title, and I will just show you those jobs. 
Today, the technology is so good, it says, I'm going to look at everyone who has ever searched for product manager in, their, in the history of this company and then see all the other job titles that they've ever looked for. And as a result of that, they're able to cluster opportunities that might be interesting to you that a traditional search engine would not be able to surface. And that's really the tip of the iceberg. Because with these algorithms, we can start to use signal data from the job seekers themselves. So we know, for example, if 10 job seekers go look at a specific job and none of them apply, there is something unappealing about that job and the algorithm is smart enough to stop showing it. Ian, how does ZipRecruiter make money? So ZipRecruiter was built with a very simple premise is that a lot of small businesses don't have the time to figure out which job board they should be posting to. So ZipRecruiter enables you, if you are a hiring manager, opposed to over 100 job sites with a single click, and then all the candidates from all those different sites come into one easy-to-review list. And in uh, as far as uh, wages go, can you track individual uh, wage offers or salary requirements on the site? Yeah, so we get, you know, high hundreds of thousands of jobs directly posted through ZipRecruiter every month, and one of the pieces of information we capture about every one of those opportunities is what salary is being offered. We use a BLS-based definition of low-skilled, mid-skilled, and high-skilled, so we can watch trends that occur in the hiring market. And just to make it simple, across all levels, all, all skill levels in the past year, there has been wage increase. So yeah. it is, as I said, a great time to be a job seeker. So, Ian, just not to harp on this, but who pays you? Does it, is it the job seeker or is it the potential employer? I'm, it's the employers who pay us in order to do that job distribution and collect candidates. We never charge job seekers for anything. Okay. What, what is next for a Zip Recruiter? Is there a way to tell whether it's been a successful match and then you use that same algorithm or an unsuccessful match brings some kind of remedy or correction? I mean, it's been, it, honestly, it's the most exciting time it's ever been to be working in the job category. The technology that has evolved uh, is, is so advanced, it's starting to feel like magic. So historically, from the time you posted a job to the time you filled that job, it would take you between 45 and 60 days. And now, literally almost instantly after you post a job, we're able to go cherry pick the very best candidates that are in market and notify them instantly of just that job going live, yeah. which is inducing unbelievable high quality candidates literally within an hour of a job being posted. The entire recruiting process is moving towards an almost real-time experience. Yeah. And it's going to be a real disruption to the way people hire. Ian Siegel, thank you so much for joining us. Ian Siegel, co-founder and chief executive officer of Zip Recruiter. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.